The Bob Murphy Show, episode 196. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. What I'm going to do in this particular episode is replay a recent interview I had with Stefan Lavera. He has a popular podcast, YouTube channel dedicated to Bitcoin and Austrian economics. And that's two things that I know somewhat about, one more than the other. And so he had me on and uh, the episode turned out so well, I thought, you know what, I'm going to replay this over on my circuit. So uh, some of this stuff is things, if you're a longtime listener of mine, that you'll recognize themes, you know, regression theorem and how does that apply. But we get into details that I have not mentioned before. So that's why I thought, okay, this is some genuinely new material, you know, stuff I've never gotten into in a conversation. And so that's why I wanted to play it for you folks over here. One thing I will mention is because he was interviewing me, I don't have my good mic in this. So it's, the audio quality is not up to what you expect from the Bob Murphy show on my end, but still, it's, you know, there's nothing terrible about it. It's just I didn't have my good mic on me at the time. So without further ado, here is Stefan Lavera's interview of me on the economics of Bitcoin. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Bob, I'm a huge fan of your work. I've read a lot of your writing, which, and you're quite a prolific writer and uh, producer of content. So uh, definitely very excited to chat with you today about Bitcoin and Austrian economics as well. I, I guess I'd love to just start with a little bit of your thoughts on kind of where you see Bitcoin right now in terms of, I know you've been following it for some time and you were writing about it and speaking about it, I think in 2012 or 2013, if I recall correctly. So uh I know you're no stranger to it, but uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are on it and where you sort of see the adoption of it going. Sure. So I was not in the first wave, I suppose, of Austro-libertarian types who were into Bitcoin. So there were people, you know, my friends and associates who some of them early on were telling me, oh, you should check out Bitcoin. And I didn't know what it was. And I was, oh, yeah, I'll look into that. And I just didn't. In retrospect, I wish I had looked into it earlier, obviously, as most people say. And then, yeah, I... I think it was, um, I don't know if you know Tatiana Moroz, but yep. she at one point said to me something like, the thing that really got me interested was she said something like, these Bitcoin conferences, well, she said, first of all, the normal libertarian conference is real, I don't know if she used the phrase doom and gloom, but she just said it's kind of, it's sort of like we're all kids sitting in the corner and we know everyone else is stupid, but we're not changing anything. It was something like that. I remember it. And she <laughs> said, but when you go to, but when you go to a Bitcoin conference, she said, it's, everyone's real happy and they're productive and they're creating things. And it's just such a different vibe. And I was like, Oh really? And I think that was her comment on that was what got me interested in terms of like what actually, you know, got me to, to go look at it. So just as an economist, I was interested in it just to understand how does it work? So I had to, you know, talk to enough people and read some things to at least understand the mechanics of it enough. So I thought, okay, I get what it is. And now let me look at it as an economist and see, you know, how does that work? So you're probably familiar with Silas Barta. I wrote a understanding Bitcoin guide early on 
and there that it was because at that point, so things are way better now, but at that point, it was like the people who were technical and understood how Bitcoin worked didn't really know that much about monetary theory. And so the way they would talk about Bitcoin, it wasn't quite right. And then the, the people who knew monetary theory, the economists, they didn't really understand how Bitcoin worked. And so they were saying dumb stuff. So that was a, the function of that guide was kind of just to give people the language and you know the, um, a framework. So throughout, I've always been trying to be agnostic about like, hey, I'm not giving investment advice, but I did, I, I, I was willing to say to people that I think, yeah, in the year 2050, like people will know who owns the Bitcoins. I mean, some will be lost and whatever, but it's not like it's just a, a passing fad and no one's going to care about the, the ledger anymore. As I, I did think that was going to be, but I wasn't sure, you know, is it just going to be a curiosity because some new cryptocurrencies were just so much better that they eclipsed the, you know, I wasn't sure about that. Um, so I guess now, I mean, it's clearly done very well, uh, you know, surpassing most people's expectations, except like the hardcore believers who are like, nope, nope, this is going to be the, you know, the currency of the future. And so it's, I guess recently my, I've, I've started doing more of it. And this, this is the last thing I, and I'll turn it back to you. I know I've been talking here for a bit is that it's what Bitcoin did in terms of like the Austro libertarian framework is uh, Friedrich Hayek had an essay in the seventies called the denationalization of money, where, where he said that, you know, fiat currency, fiat money has this bad rep. And that's because governments, you know, monopoly governments have always issued it. And just like if governments always build roads, the roads are terrible, but that doesn't mean roads per se are always bad. And so Hayek envisioned, could there be competing fiat money issuers in the private sector where it's all voluntary, but there you still had the problem of trusting the, 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 you know, the issuer that once they got market share, how could you stop them from just, you know, unloading a boatload of the currency, that sort of thing. So that's really what the innovation that Bitcoin gave. So that's what attracted to me, me to it. And so now more recently, though, I made some wise guy remark on Twitter about how, hey, just because I'm not always talking about Bitcoin doesn't mean I think it's a bad investment or something like that. And someone pointed out to me and said, no, you're setting up a straw man, Bob, because I said something like, just because I'm not being obnoxious about it doesn't mean I don't like it or something like that. You know, I, was, I was making a joke. And someone said, no, that's not the issue. The issue is, Bob, this is the most important development in advancing freedom in you know, a century. And someone listening to your podcast wouldn't even know anything about it. And at first, I thought the guy was wrong. And I went and looked at my archive and I realized, oh my gosh, I really haven't been talking because I wrote the guide and I've, you know, in other people's interviews who interview me, I would talk about it. But I, but I realized, okay, this guy actually is right. I thought I had been talking more about it over the years than I actually had through my own channels. And so, you know, so now I'm trying to correct that a little bit. I'm going to have VJ uh, Boyapati on my podcast soon and talk about things like that. So that's kind of my stint. That it's, I always thought it was interesting theoretically. And I just wanted to clarify the terminology. You know, so economists and Bitcoin, you know, miners and stuff could talk to each other. And then now I'm, I'm realizing, yeah, this really is holding, you know, it's, it's really doing a lot and proving the critics wrong, at least so far. And so just people who are interested in it is a last thing I'll say, what it's doing is sort of like how Uber and, and Lyft did way more to show the average person that you don't need licensing of cab drivers and, and exactly. how the medallion system isn't about consumer safety. It's clearly just about rents for the cab drivers in the city. You know, that and so likewise, now when people talk about, you know, oh, couldn't we have private currencies that used to that would have been considered crazy? Like, oh, yeah, I want some private. Yeah, I, I, do I want, you know, Walmart issuing the money? I don't think so. But now that you have Bitcoin as an example, I think, you know, normal people can look at that and be like, oh, yeah, that's not 
that's way better than what they did in Zimbabwe, for example. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a great, uh, it's great that you're uh, going to have VJ on your show as well. Uh, VJ is very well known in the Bitcoin world. And I think you've certainly done your part to teach people about Bitcoin. I mean, you've been writing about it over the years. So I think in terms of, you know, libertarians not doing enough to teach their followers about Bitcoin, I don't think you can, people could fairly level that charge against you that you've actually done, <laughs> you've done quite a bit to try and help people. And I mean, for listeners of the show who've learned from me, I've actually learned, you know, for you listeners out there, I've learned a lot from Bob. And so, um, I, well, I, I think, appreciate that. Yeah, if I could just yeah. say real fast, what it was is I think I made, you know, whatever contribution I was going to do was early on when I was just like explaining how it worked. And then like, you know, maybe we'll get into this today with the regression theorem and that kind of, I was just trying to clarify stuff, but then I didn't stay on top of the technical stuff. So after a while, that's partly why I didn't comment is because I just, I didn't know enough about the details to be able to really say, you know, like the difference between different types of, you know, this versus Ethereum. And that, 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 I, I didn't feel comfortable saying too much about it. So that's partly why. But, but you're right. Like what I thought I was going to do, I did early on. And so people like you who were really into it, you, you knew what I did. And OK, fair enough. But um, I think this guy's point, this critic of mine was more saying just, you know, you periodically telling the masses about it, you know, we, we need, we need you, you need your help, Bob. I think that's what, where it was coming from. Yeah, of course. And I think that perhaps that charge could be more fairly leveled against maybe other libertarians out there that, Hey, you know, this is actually a technology that could bring about the society that we as, you know, Austro-libertarian anarcho-capitalists, it might help us kind of push society in that direction. And I think that's an interesting idea. Um, but I guess one other point I really wanted to bring up, and I think VJ is known for really popularizing this within the Bitcoin world, is this idea that Bitcoin is going to move through stages. Now, this is not a new idea. I've discussed this uh, with uh, Guido Holzman, and he mentions, you know, people like Jevons were saying is this idea that it moves from collectible, store of value, medium of exchange, unit of account in that order. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that process as opposed to where maybe some people ex impose this incredibly high bar and say, oh, no, if it's not being used as like everything, unit of account, medium of exchange, everything all at once, it's failed and it's not going to work. What's your view on that idea? OK, so let me confess, I actually wasn't aware of that passage from Jevons until I saw it in VJ's essay. And so and even VJ's essay, I wasn't aware that or if I did see it, I forgot about it because it was only until more recently it was actually Spencer Schiff sent it to me and said, hey, you know, this is making the rounds again. You know, this was this came out a while ago, but for whatever reason, this is, you know, making the rounds again. Have you? And I was like, whoa. And I, and, and he, and I said, I, I didn't know about that Jevons quote. So it's interesting just to give your listeners some of the background that part of the hesitancy on the, on the part of some liber or let's say Austrian fans with that is I don't remember the exact quote, but but Ludwig von Mises, when he was talking about money said something along the lines of it's common to ascribe several different functions to money, like to say it's a medium of exchange, a unit of account, a store of value. And he said, these are all, um, it, it, it's not helpful to think of it this way. Money is the universally accepted medium of account. And because it's that, it does those other things like automatically or yeah. something like that. You know, those were the exact yeah. words. So that's not actually, that doesn't contradict Jevons or, or what VJ said, right? It, it could be that it goes through the stages before it becomes the commonly accepted medium of exchange. And then at that point, it does the other things too. So it's it's not that Mises was wrong if VJ is right or anything like that. But I'm just explaining why I have tended not to think of money in terms of those different functions because, hey, Mises told me not to kind of thing. Yeah. And then, um, and also a lot of times too, just the way people use the phrase store of value is just real loosey goosey. And so 
I mean, even forget Bitcoin. I'm just saying historically. And so that's just partly why I hadn't thought of it like that. But yeah, I certainly the way VJ lays it out, that seems very, very compelling to me. I guess part of the problem is we sort of assume that, oh, like VJ makes statements in his thing about historically, this is what happened. I don't know how much we actually know that that's what happened with gold, for example. You know what I mean? Like we can tell stories and maybe see certain things, but I think it's kind of tricky from our vantage point to, to literally know the, you know, the historical progression, just like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Stefan, um, oh, what's the guy's name? David Graeber. Yeah. The, the Marxist, guy. Yeah. Right. So he, I, I don't know if you saw my like critical review of his big book, but you know, he thinks the anthropological evidence is clear that Menger and the rest of the Austrians are insane when they give the accounts of how commodity money or commodity goods turned into a money and so forth. He thinks, you know, the different process altogether that would largely be like a, a state or a sovereign issuing fiat currency. And, and so like I got in there and, and I see why he thinks that, but I just showed, no, the anthropological evidence you present is actually more consistent with our theory. You know what I mean? Like he just, he's so sure he knows what happens that he goes and looks and says, yep, the data confirm it. And so I'm saying likewise here that I'm sure the history is consistent with that, with the Javonsian story, but I'm, I'm just raising a flag of caution that, you know, how well do we really have, you know, do we have like diary entries from somebody in the year 24, you know, to, to confirm that, ah, at this point, you know, this is still just a, a, a collectible, but it's not yet money. You know what I mean? So that, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. I'm it, it certainly sounds plausible to me. And I, and I do think that yes, with Bitcoin, that is what's going to happen. And in my most recent podcast episode, which I, I gather you heard, that's what I, I didn't use that terminology, but that's what I was trying to get through is that actually, you know, the whole problem of, if everyone's just holding it because they know, oh, this thing is going to be the currency of the future, it's going to be worth, you know, today's terms, like millions of dollars per Bitcoin, I'd be crazy to spend it. Well, it can never get to that if everyone keeps thinking that, you know, that problem and just to show, you know, that it's not end of story. There's a way to explain that dynamic, but it, it's a little bit tricky at first to think through how that works. I say, yeah, let's get into that a little bit, because I think this is one of those things where maybe there's some things that we as Bitcoiners, we're getting wrong about Austrian economics. And I think you're, as you're, you know, you're the teacher, you're the expert, you can sort of help us here. And I think that might be one area where this kind of idea of the hodl forever, like, okay, so I guess in practice, then maybe it's more like people who've been hodling for years, each of those people on the margin at some point, as the price rises up, they have some point where they're like, okay, I might use some of it to buy a house, buy a car for my family, or, you know, little things like that. But along the way up, there's kind of new waves of people who are coming in. And I think this is probably a point I've, I think I've seen, I've learned from you as well, is that, you know, all the money is already existing. What we're changing really is the relative valuations between these things, right? Like the dollars in your account or my account or the Bitcoins that I hold, like it exists already. It's already out there, 18.7 million or so today. And obviously the total cap is 21, but really... The process of Bitcoin adoption is actually that distributing out to more and more people. And only then can we actually go to the stage of people are going to really use it day to day, whereas until then, people are going to be mostly holding, right? Yeah, right. And, and so, again, this is elementary, but let me just say it because sometimes just saying real basic things, you know, helps to clarify so you're right. If the the you know the the typical hodler who is sitting there, no, I get I'm every spare dollar I get, I'm trading and you know add into my stack and sats and whatever. 
and I'm never going to get rid of them until, you know, until the time is right. Like maybe they had that kind of idea and they keep seeing the price go up as I see this is confirming that I'm right. The only way the price of Bitcoin can be going up is if somebody is selling Bitcoins or, you know, fractions of it, right? Because that's what it means. Like that's how we know, well, what's today's price? It means there were people, someone owned Bitcoins and sold them for dollars today. And that's how we know what's today's price. So it's a bit weird that if everybody who currently owned Bitcoins was going to just be a whole forever person, we would go check and would say, we don't have any prices because there's no sales going. You know what I mean? We'd have to say, oh, the price three days ago was such and such. And then the next day, price four days ago was this. And it would just sit there and it wouldn't go up. It, you know what I mean? So it's this weird thing where if you convinced everybody else to be a holder, including the miners who were getting new ones, say, no, no, don't sell them. Just, just add them to your stacks then the price actually wouldn't go up. It would just stay stuck. <laughs> it's funny to think about, but you're right. You know, yeah. And then be like, oh, wait a minute. But it's kind of like, I guess that would be if, if it's literally 100% a hodl forever. In reality, it might be even 99% or 99.9%. Right. And just that little marginal person, they're the person setting the price, right? Right, right. And, and so, yeah, so I think the, the way around that, you know, sort of contradiction or paradox is to say, you know, if you think the price is going to be something, you know, in the far distant future, and so you're, you know, you have the attitude. So, all right. So clearly we just showed, okay, it can't be literally correct to say everyone who owns Bitcoins, if they were smart, would never get rid of them because then we would all just be stuck holding them. And, the, you know, the price would be undefined, or at least you'd say the last known price was, and it would stay there forever. And that's, that, that can't be right. And so, um, and, and yet, you know, to get to the future state where Bitcoin is the currency of the world means on each transaction, one side is going to be, the buyer is going to be giving up Bitcoins for it. So clearly, if Bitcoin is going to live up to what its fans think it's going to be in the year 2100, at that point, it's not going to be holo forever. It's going to be, no, every, anytime you want something, you get, you get rid of Bitcoins. That's what it does. That's its, its function. You know, it's a medium of exchange. You acquire them only because you're going to give them away in the future to get real goods and services. That's what a medium of exchange does. And so at that point, it can't be a holo forever mentality. And so... You know, how do, how do you bridge that gap is that, yeah, just like you said, and this is elementary once you say it, but, you know, go ahead just for the sake of argument to complete it, that if you have an, an idea of what, you know, so at that point, let's say, oh, it'll, one Bitcoin will be the equivalent in today's money of, you know, $10 million each. So right now it's at 65000 or whatever. It's way underpriced. So the more I get, I'm sitting on them because I know it's going to go up as more and more people realize how how great this is. That's correct. But, you know, as it gets closer and closer to that, at some point you would say, okay, now I don't need to hold it forever because it's actually gotten close to what I think it's correct fundamental value is or whatever phrase you want to use. So there, it's not a hold it forever. It's hold it until you actually start thinking that it, it actually is now approaching the fundamental value. And then the last tweak is to say you're you know, allowed to, as it's going up, you, can, you become fantastically wealthy. And so it's not irrational for you to sell off some of it. Um, you know, there, there's nothing wrong about that. Like, so even if you're, you know, if you forget Bitcoin, just you're sitting on barrels of oil or something and you think oil is going to be trading for $1,000 a barrel 30 years from now, as it starts going up, you know, especially if you need cash for something, there's nothing irrational about you selling it ahead of time. You know, if you could get someone to lend you the money or maybe you want to do that, but it's not crazy for you to sell early or, you, you know, there's other things you could do. So, once they get more sophisticated financial derivative things and you can you know, buy calls and puts on Bitcoin and futures contract, then you could get more sophisticated maybe if you thought, oh no, I'd really like to take some profits now, but I still think this thing is going to go up. 
you could do something more sophisticated than just trading it at what you think is still a, a low ball price. Yeah. But the point is, you you it's not like you have to sit on it until the year twenty one, you know, or bequeath it to your grandkids and say, under no circumstance did you trade this until it's you know got to a market price of ten million U.S. dollars um, that you're allowed to to do that. So that that's like you say, kind of, and, and you're performing a social function. So the more people who had that strategy that said, no, I'm holding it until it hits. 10 million US dollars, because that's when the whole world would be using it. If the price was rapidly appreciating and some more and more people started getting in on it. And like you said, just some people on the margin were selling little fractions just because, hey, let me sell one Satoshi and get a mansion. Why not? Doing that, then instead of having to wait to the year 2100, it gets pulled to the for, you know the forward. And then, no, maybe it's by the year 2025 where it hits that 10 million price. And then we can all start using it as a medium of exchange. So it's, it, it's actually performing a social function and all this stuff is predicated on the assumption that the, the forecasters are right. If, if actually Peter Schiff is right, well, then you're hurting things by holding. You're, you're screwing things up <laughs> yeah. even more. But assuming Bitcoin really is supposed to be the currency of the future or one of them, then the more people who see that now and act accordingly, you're actually bringing it forward in time. So we don't have to wait as long to use the better currency. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I'm curious as well. So this is like the whole Peter Schiff thing as well, where he'll be like, oh, there's no intrinsic value. But I mean, maybe uh, he might be getting at this idea that somehow money must do something else. So like that there must be some kind of non-monetary use for something. That's one side. Or the other side would be, well, can something work purely as a money? And the idea is, you know, as if we're, you know, following in the thought of Karl Menger, looking for the most saleable Really, what matters is whatever is the most marketable or the most saleable. Where do you come down on that? Okay, so I'll make two two points on that, and then obviously you can take it however you'd like. So regarding you know Schiff's position, and and the reason I pick on him is just because you know it's a lot of people have been saying that about, especially in the hard money you know pro gold community, have been saying that about Bitcoin. And so my point to them is, okay, you know I, I get what you're saying, and, and there's a sense in which you know, the fundamental value of Bitcoin is zero. And anything above that is just pure speculation in the sense that there's no rhyme or reason for why should it be 63,000 versus two or versus 30 million. You know what I mean? Like if, if it's Bitcoin is whatever people think it's going to be kind of deal. And so, but by the same token, gold, you know, has a commodity per, you know, function, uh, you know, as an industrial uses and then as jewelry, you know, it, it's pretty to look at. And so people would pay for it. But then once it had that and then gained, because of its various attributes, uh, a monetary function, clearly its market purchasing power is much higher than it would have been had people not used it there. Just like you can see with the demonetization of silver, how the market price of silver fell relative to other things, including gold. And so there's a sense in which, okay, gold right now is in a bubble because a big chunk of its market value isn't due to its industrial uses or even you know as jewelry. But because of its role as the money, or you know, as a store of value, whatever term you want to use right now, if it's not technically money, all right. So, but yeah, I don't see Peter Schiff saying that. Oh, gold right now is way overvalued. It should really be about two hundred and fifty dollars an ounce because that's what we can explain from its fundamental. You, you know, he doesn't talk like that. And so I'm saying, okay, so if you get how gold can be a perfectly good medium of exchange, whose market value is whatever it is two thousand, because you know, in 1800 of that is due to its monetary history or abilities and only 200 is that 
Well, that gap, then that's what you could explain Bitcoin as. So yeah, Bitcoin's at 63,000 or whatever right now. And 63,000 of it is due to its role as a money and zero is due to its role for, you know, making sandwiches and cars. And there, to me, there's nothing contradictory. And you, now you, some, someone like Schiff might be tempted to say, well, no, see, there's got to be like a fundamental building block. And then the, the, you know, purchasing or the, you know, the monetary thing gets added on top of that. But with Bitcoin, there's no foundation. But it's not a percentage thing. It's not that gold would be something like a 200 and then because of its monetary uses, it gets multiplied by a 100. That doesn't really make it. It's clearly would be an additive thing, I would say, if you get what I'm saying. So the fact that it's you're adding something, well, why couldn't you just add it to zero instead of adding it to 200 or whatever? So to me, it's th- that's what I'd say on that. And then um, when you were bringing up uh, the, the role, the, the Menger and so forth, so there people, and if you want to, I'll, I'll do a real short version and then tell me stuff. And if you want to make it longer, it has to do with Mises regression theorem. And this again was something that people would trot out early on who were fans of Austrian economics, fans of gold, who said Bitcoin can't possibly become a money because of, it doesn't have this history of just being a regular commodity. And so Mises famously, what, what he was doing is he was using subjective value theory applied to money. And Economists before him had tried to do this. So, you know, Menger's, you know, pioneer subjective value theory in 1871, and Mises' The Theory of Money and Credit comes out in 1912. So there's a, you know, big several decades there. And so you'd think, why did it take so long for Mises to do this? And the reason was some economists had said that, that, oh, yeah, just like we explain um, the, you know, why is it that oranges trade against apples at a certain ratio in the marketplace? ultimately because of subjective preferences, that people value oranges and apples on the margin, blah, blah, margin utility. The reason that seemed like a, a dead end when it came to money was you said, why is it that people value money so much? You say, oh, because it has purchasing power. Oh, why does money have purchasing power? Well, because people value it so much. And literally, you're just arguing in a circle. And so Mises solved that paradox or that circular regret. And he said, no, the reason it has purchasing power right now is because we have expectations that it'll have purchasing power in the near future, right? I would sell an hour of my labor for $100 now because I have this idea that I can take the $100 in the near future and buy stuff with it that I'm willing to give up my labor right now to get the stuff from. Well, how do, where, how do I know that? Well, because in the immediate past, looking around, I can see what $100 can get me and I can kind of do a rough estimate. But then that looks like you're just saying, okay, so you're explaining the purchasing power today by reference to yesterday's purchasing power. Well, why did money have that purchasing power yesterday? Well, because the day before, and it looks like you're just going back forever. So economists thought that too is a dead end. There's a problem with trying to use subjective value theory. And so then Mises said, no, no, you don't have to go back forever. You go back to barter when everything was just you know a regular commodity, and then that's where the explanation stops. So, it w- so what it was doing rhetorically, the regression theorem, was just showing it's okay for us to use subjective value theory, not just to explain real goods, but also the money good. It's in the same framework. And that doesn't open us up to charges that we're committing a logical or like an infinite regress. All right. So that's what he was doing with it. And that's the function it served. So you can see why superficially it looks like Bitcoin can't work. But strictly speaking, if you go and look at Mises' arguments, what he was showing, what, what he was claiming was that anything that's a medium of exchange had to have a prior history is a regular good, just, you know, commodity. And so Bitcoin already is a medium of exchange. Nobody would deny that. And so my point has always been a modest one to the Austrian saying, if you think the regression theorem has something to say about Bitcoin's adoption or viability, 
the hurdle would have been Bitcoin can never become a medium of exchange because of the regression theorem. Like that's a plausible. In fact, I would say that's a straightforward reading that Mises seems to be saying that. And so since it is a medium of exchange, that means Mises was wrong if that's what you thought he was saying. But it's not, oh yeah, sure, it's a medium of exchange, but it's never going to be adopted by enough people that will call it a money. There's nothing there in, in what Mises wrote. So I'm saying those who are really clinging to Mises and saying, no, no, the regression theorem says Bitcoin can't happen. You're just saying Mises was wrong because really clearly what he's saying is it can't become a medium of exchange. So I'm not saying Mises was wrong. It's possible that we could reconcile the regression theorem with Bitcoin having become a medium of exchange. But I'm just saying that that's where the log jam would have been. It's not Bitcoin becoming money. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think you're right. I think that was unfortunately a, a catching point for a lot of Austrians who came, who were more in the gold world where they kind of said, oh, gold won't, uh, Bitcoin won't work because of the regression theorem. But I think in some sense, it's like, well, other people had a different answer, right? People like Conrad Graf, and I believe, I think you, you had a similar kind of position as well, which was that like, it was more important, it's more like a show you're working. And then once you've gone past that initial transaction back in, you know, one of those first times when it got transacted in a more barter sense, right? Whether it was the 10,000 Bitcoins for two pizzas or some of the earlier, really early ones where it was just on a forum and some random, you know, internet nerds are doing Bitcoin transactions. But at that point, it, you know, it had already surpassed. And then now it's not like Bitcoin is going to fail because it doesn't supposedly meet the regression theorem anymore, right? Well, right. So, yeah. So specifically, what I said, and, and I left it up to the reader to say, you can say whether you think this means Mises was wrong or not, but what, what Mises had in mind and why at first it seemed so clear that, oh yeah, of course, for something to become a medium of exchange, it must have had a prior history as a regular commodity, is he was saying, look, what, for, you know, for a medium of exchange, again, what, what does that mean? It means you're willing to trade away valuable goods and services to acquire this thing, that's the medium of exchange, not because you, you're going to consume it, not even because you're going to use it in production, but because you're going to trade it away in the future to get other stuff. And so really what you're thinking is, what I'm giving up for it now, I would be willing to give up for the things I'm going to get in the future when I spend this, right? And it's because you're really making like an intertemporal trade, trade in your mind. And this thing is just the medium to effect those trades, right? That's what the, the term medium, like, you know, like sound is a medium through which sound waves travel. It's just showing this is the good through which this intertemporal transaction takes place. It goes through. Mm -hmm. And so you're really selling today's labor for the cars next year when you're getting money and saving it and then using the money to buy the car a year from now. Mm. And so yeah. Mises' point was, how can that work? The only way that makes sense is if you say, is if you know what the purchasing power of that good is, right? Because if, if this has never been, if it's not currently a you know, good that's being used in barter, that we, we have some idea of how much does this trade for in terms of apples and oranges and horses and chickens, well, then it doesn't make sense to say, oh, I would be, you know, would I be willing to give up my hours of labor or give up my chickens to get this thing because then I'll use it to go buy other stuff with it? How would I know whether that's a good deal or not if I don't know what it trades for? And so that's, that's kind of his point is that it, it needs to have been a commodity, not because of some metaphysical reason. He just meant because people need to know what is its market value against other goods and services to be to determine, does it make sense for me to take this thing in trade, even though I can't personally use it, right? So that, that was the idea. So that's why he thought it had to have this prior history before it was adopted for its possible use as a medium of exchange. And so with Bitcoin, why that, didn't, why that wasn't a logjam was because in the beginning, 
Yeah, right when you know it's first the white papers published and people you know have it on a internet boards or whatever. Nobody knows what the heck is this thing worth because it's not worth that. You know, there's no history, and people thought it was kind of a neat thing. And yeah, some guy on a lark said, "Okay, yeah, I'll give you two pizzas for ten thousand or whatever the thing was." And so you could say to that guy, "Well, why would you do that? Why would you give up two perfectly good pizzas for these things that you have no, you know?" And he goes, "Well, on the off chance it takes off, or I don't know, just because it's cool." you know, or I'm a nerd, whatever. You know what I mean? Like I only gave up two pizzas. Who cares? So you see, I think that was the the thing that Mises didn't fully appreciate is that the thing might have an extremely low purchasing power early on to just get off the ground. And then there is a history and then people can start going from there. And so I think that was, I just, I just, so my personal take is I think Mises was wrong and he didn't think of that possibility that, yeah, it could start if it had a really low purchasing power. And the reason he didn't think that is because like it wouldn't make sense with shells or something. You know what I mean? If somebody just picked up a shell yeah. and said, hey, everyone, let's use this as the money. It's, you know, instead of trading your valuable stuff for stuff you actually want, trade it for these shells that are useless. <laughs> and then like, why would I give up a horse for a bunch of shells? You go, oh, because you can take the shells and go get what you want. Because we'll tell that guy to also give up his good stuff for shells he can't use. And that would sound like the stupidest idea ever, right? <laughs> yeah. But that's because the shells aren't particularly useful. Whereas Bitcoin, of course, you know, the reason they thought this might take off is because of its attributes and how if we could get enough people using this, look at how you know useful versatile it be. And, yeah. and useful it would be as opposed to just some shells that nobody cares about. Yeah, yeah. I like that analogy. It's funny. Um, I'm curious as well, what other things are there that you, I mean, you probably see a bunch of Bitcoiner uh, you know, spouting off on Twitter or whatever. What things do you think other Bitcoiners are getting wrong? Uh, I, maybe maybe one example might be one uh, might be like money is not a measuring rod. I've seen you make that point, or I'm I'm curious as well if you've got any other things that you think maybe Bitcoiners aren't quite getting right about Austrian economics. Okay, well that's a good one. Can we defer that one? I do yeah, want to sure. hit that. Also, I need to let it germinate for a minute because I I forgot exactly why it is in the measure. <laughs> It'll come back <laughs> to me though because it's yeah. it's so seductive because I I got in, I wrote a thing on um what's his name. There was there were some um, oh the name's gonna escape me now but th- there were some prominent like supply side economists who were when they were battling against inflation were saying how money should be a measuring rod of value just like you know the ruler and when the government debases the currency it's like they say a foot has fifteen inches and that's crazy and actually even though you get where they're coming from and their you know their hearts in the right place to warn about debasing the currency and how you can't do economic calculation if money's value is so uncertain that. Could, but actually, Mises wrote a lot about no money is not a measuring value, a measuring rod of value, and that's the wrong way to think of it. So why don't we, if you don't mind, come back to that? But yeah, sure. Let me just yeah. make like some more fun ones, and I'm actually curious to get your take on this too. So me as an outsider, I noticed this was that um, two, two things. So originally, people were saying how oh, this is the wave of the future. This is so awesome because it's this anonymous thing and you can't be traced. And then when authorities were complaining about, hey, drug dealers are using this. Some Bitcoin defenders said, what are you talking about? It's a public ledger. This is actually much easier to trace your transactions in Bitcoin than even using cash. So what do you t-? So that seemed weird. And then, and then the other one was, you know, the, the proponents of Bitcoin early on were saying, this isn't about personalities. You know, nobody can hijack the system. You don't have to trust anyone. It's, it's uh, you know, peer-to-peer there, there's nobody in charge of Bitcoin. It's, it's beyond human control. That's the beauty of it. And that's why we should do this rather than anything else. Even Hayek's vision of privately issued currencies, technically that company could screw you over. And then later though, it was when there were 
arguments about like Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash and other forks and this and that, like the two communities would be yelling at the other ones and saying, they're ruining Bitcoin. I can't believe these idiots are going. It was almost like we were having an election in between the two camps. And I was like, wait a minute, I thought human personality had nothing to do with it, you know? So I, I know those aren't literal contradictions, but I'm just curious. Yeah, sure. Happy to, yeah. happy to. Yeah, yeah, of course. So for the first one, Bitcoin being private. Now, the reality is Bitcoin is somewhere in the middle, depending on how you do it. If you are more technologically savvy and you know how to use Tor and use CoinJoin and various privacy techniques, you can be more private. But to the you know, so, so-called contradiction, I would say it depends on who you're talking to. Because there are some people who try to sort of make Bitcoin, make it more palatable to people in the government and For that reason, there are some people out there trying to say, yeah, look, see, it's all a public ledger and therefore it's not good for criminals and blah, blah, blah. I just think that's not the consistent way to go about it, though. I think of it more like we should bite the bullet. We should just say, look, I'm sorry, it's a neutral tool. Some people will use it for good. Some people will use it for bad. And that's the way of the world. And I'm sorry, that's just how it is. Um, On that same point, also, I think it's also from a libertarian point of view, we would point out that there's also a bit of regulatory capture going on because there are certain chain surveillance firms in this industry who want to uh, try and market their product as though, oh, hey, look, see, I can help you track track things on the chain, blah, 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 um, to, to try and help appease, for example, AML regulators, uh, anti-money laundering or ca- sanctions and so on, financial, fin- quote unquote, financial crimes regulations, right? It's the typical one there. So I guess the way I would resolve that is I would say, let's bite the bullet. I think it's a neutral tool. And we should just accept that, yeah, look, the reality is right now, most of the crime is actually being done with the US dollar, not with Bitcoin. But, you know, I buy the bullet there and I say openly, yeah, I think there will be criminals who use Bitcoin. But that's mm-hmm. Bitcoin is the money of enemies. And we have to accept that. And we have to just openly say, yeah, I'm sorry. But the net benefit of Bitcoin is going to be so much greater that, okay, even a few criminals using it is not going to... Um, you know, it's going to be a net benefit, great net benefit to society, obviously, to stop fiat inflation, stop central banking, blah, 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 like longer term. Um, to the second point about nobody can hijack Bitcoin. Now, that's an interesting one as well. So, it, again, this depends on where your view in, you know, obviously, I was more on the small blocker side and I was more, you know, anti Bcash, right? But I think it depends on, I think part of it is, Bitcoin is not impossible to change. It's just extremely, extremely, extremely difficult to change. And I'd say that's probably the first part. And I think um, the other part is it depends on which view you take, because there are some people who take the view of more like, we knew that was going to fail. We were just trying to help you understand why that was a bad idea. And that's why the network should not have gone there. But I can sort of see where, you know, if someone who's not sort of deeply into the nuance of it, that it can be a bit challenging. Um, but a really interesting book is called, I forgot the exact name, but it's by Jonathan Beer, B-I-E-R from uh, BitMEX Research. He wrote this book called The Block, uh, Block Size War. Uh, and he, he really catalogs and shows exactly um, those last few years uh, in terms of, I think, sort of 2015, 16, 17, culminating in 2017, obviously, with the whole Bcash, Segwit2x and all of that stuff. Um, but I think that's probably the main yeah, so I would say it comes down to Bitcoin is not impossible to change. It's just extremely difficult to change. And the changes that are, if, if you will, uh, possible, there's a range of those, right? Obviously, I think anyone trying to change the 21 million limit, that's a, non, that's a non-starter. That's like not even going to get out the door because like literally you're going to 
basically make all the current holders have to devalue their own, they're going to have to dilute their own share of Bitcoin. I, it's just not happening, right? It's just a non-starter. Well, can That's I ask I you, say. and I yeah. apologize, I don't know if, like, if your audience is so savvy that this is like stupid for them to hear, but if I share our conversation with like some of my fans, then they won't know this stuff. So if you don't mind me, can you... Just spell those. So it's, it's, because yeah, sometimes the way people talk, it's like, oh, in order to break the 21 million thing, you know, you would need a, a supercomputer that was older than the age of the universe. And it, but on the other hand, it's like, oh, wait a minute, we realized there was a problem. And so they made this adjustment to the Bitcoin protocol and everyone downloaded the new software. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. I thought, so I, so strictly speaking, could it be, it's, is it mathematically possible that all the miners could go and say, yes, that there should be now 25 million Bitcoins. Gotcha. Could they do that? No. So the answer is, okay. so think of it this way. Everyone running a Bitcoin full node is verifying. And miners are helping secure, they are providing hash power to help secure the chain, but their power is not of validity. Their power is one of transaction ordering. And so in this case, they're, Hypothetically, if the miners all tried to make a fork of Bitcoin and only mine the 25 million fork of Bitcoin, all the Bitcoin node runners who are holders and not necessarily miners, they would just reject that. And then they would be basically, we can think of the, the miners, they're kind of like security guards. So if the security guards, you know, say you're some millionaire and then like the security guards say, hey, we're going to go guard that other house over there. Well, you'll just hire some new security guards. That's kind of the, mm -hmm. I guess. Okay, it's, it's possible I misspoke. I, I didn't mean, yeah. I didn't mean to, I was trying to say, what is the relevant community? Like clearly if everyone who has anything to do with Bitcoin agreed, oh yeah, I used to think 21 million, that was a non-negotiable point, but I've seen the light and it should be 25 million. That would be better for all of us. Could that conceivably happen? Even though you'd think that, no, that'd be, they would never agree to that, but could it? Oh, okay. So it is. Is it technically possible? Is what I'm getting. I get. Yeah. So yes, it would be technically possible uh, that every you went around to every you know validating Bitcoin node user and every holder, and that they all somehow like if you could get them to agree. Basically, the point here is, could you get them to agree to dilute their own supply? And I, I, what I'm saying is that in practice, it would just be completely a non-starter. Like that would just never, right, you would never right. like, because what are they going to get out of that? What are they going to get for that? Like, oh, you, I just dilute my supply and for what, right? So Yeah, I mean, it, it, just because we're doing this hypothetical, I suppose what the way you would have to, it would have to happen is it'd be like a stock split and be like, you know, if you said to everyone, we're going to proportionally increase it to, or let's say we made it 42 million. We're just going to double everybody's holdings because right now, the purchasing power is too high, even with the Satoshi thing. And we just want to cut the price of a Satoshi in half just to make transactions easier. And we're just going to do this thing. And, you know, you're, all just, you're going to have double. So, yeah, the, the purchasing power will be cut in half, but you'll have twice as many. Uh, so I think in that case, people would more, I think the conversation would be more about how do we subdivide further? Mm -hmm. So if there's 21 million Bitcoin, like the number, the actual number is a bit less than 21 million in the year 2140 or whatever, right? But just for taking that for stipulation. And then each Bitcoin has 100 million Satoshis. Well, for example, the Lightning Network, some clients of that do denominate in milli Satoshis. So even a fraction already down. So basically, I think... The answer would be that we go smaller and smaller fractions of Bitcoin than to do a quote unquote stock split. Right. So, by the way, I agree with you that I, I think just the, the culture and ethos of Bitcoin and what it's supposed to be 
Like that's such a better, I mean, he's sort of like going up to, you know, NRA members and stuff and saying, what if we made, if we construed the second amendment to mean you could have a water pistol? Yeah. Like, and they would say, no, that's not, you know what I mean? So they might, yeah. some of the, especially NRA, cause they're, they're wishy-washy might be okay with banning, you know, fully automatic weapons and things, but they would never agree that, yeah, water pistols is all really the second amendment meant. Like the, to me, that's kind of like what it would be like. To try <laughs> yeah, to get, exactly. Yeah. It's just kind of like, it's just not. But strictly know, speaking, when yeah. sometimes when people make it seem as if it's literally mathematically, impo- and I might've been one of them. Like, I think I have used phrases say like Bitcoin's harder, a harder money than gold because technically an asteroid could come to earth that has a bunch of gold on it or somewhere we could go get it, you know, or scientists could figure out in the lab how to turn, you know, other baser metals into gold just, you know, with a low cost process. Whereas with Bitcoin, it's mathematically fixed at 21 million. And so, you know, the context in which that's a true statement, but strictly speaking, they, they could change it. And maybe from our perspective, we'd look and say, well, that's not Bitcoin. That's something else. But yeah, they might I call think it most, a lot of people would say that, that right. you've changed the protocol at that point and it's no right. longer Bitcoin. Yeah. But still, the, it's conceivable that the people, you could go to take a time machine and go to the year 2300 and it's possible there would be a billion Bitcoins being traded and everyone calls it Bitcoin and thinks that, no, no, this is the descendant of what you guys invented. You know, and good job, by the way. Did you guys ever figure out who Satoshi was? Yeah. And you might be horrified and say, what did you guys do? But technically, that, that is possible. Yeah, I guess theor- it's one of those things where it may be theoretically possible, yeah. but just in reality, okay. it's just like such an infinitesimally, like right. just, it's not even worth you know entering but that. I, I guess it's just to like to show people that technically there is some human control over what happens with Bitcoin, but it's dispersed throughout the community. So it's sort of like trying to get, it's, it's, to me, I don't know if you like this analogy. It's like I said, technically, like the English language morphs over time. Oh, of course. But yeah, if we I've said, heard this analogy, yeah. Right, but if we said in the year 2200, imagine if the word up meant, meant moving towards the floor, that would be kind of weird. And you'd say, I really doubt that would happen. You know, so it might be something like that. Um, yeah, I think I think it's kind of like that. And I think, I mean, I've I heard your analogy as well on, uh, you know, the market for security, thinking about, you know, law as kind of like dictionary, like imagine law and dictionaries and language and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, and then we should also get to the money is not a measuring rod point as yes, well, because right. I think that's an interesting one, because uh, I think a lot of if you're technically being precise as an Austrian, it's more like money is not neutral and our demand to hold it will shift. And I think that's also why the purchasing power of that value will really shift. And so we can't just say, oh, this is now the measuring rod of the world. It's I don't think that's quite precise. Right, but right. What, do you, what do you think? Right. So I, I just looked up to refresh my memory. So it was yeah, um, Steve Forbes, and I think he had a co-author, I think it was Elizabeth Ames, um, had a book on money and how, you know, the Fed's debasing the currency or whatever, and how to return to sound money. And in there, they were saying money should be a measuring rod, just like a ruler. And again, you know, to, to allow currency debasement is like allowing to say that, you know, 18 inches for a foot kind of thing. And you can see how that would screw everything up. And so David Gordon of the Mises Institute reviewed that book and said, yeah, it's got some great stuff about, you know, dangers of government. But actually, this point here is wrong, that money's not a measuring rod of value. And then Mark Miles, who was an economist trained by Arthur Laffer. So Mark Miles is like a you know, supply setter. So you can see why he likes Steve Forbes. They're all, you know, tax cuts for the win kind of mentality. So he was aghast and like, how the heck does David Gordon, now this is basic stuff, like, you know, couldn't believe how could someone writing for the Mises Institute not know 
you know, this is standards. Any Austrian should agree. And then I had jumped in to say, no, it's a technical point, but David Gordon is right and you guys are missing this. So the issue is just in terms of subjective value theory, money can't possibly be a measuring rod of value. So to say a measuring rod, like literally what is a measuring rod? It's because length is an objective feature of the world. And so we know like what, what we mean by a foot, you know, there's some rod somewhere in a museum, like in France or so, well, they might be in France. That's where the meter is. <laughs> I don't know where they have that, where they define what the foot is to say, this is what we mean by a foot. And then nowadays, you know, they give more precise definitions too, based on, you know, chemistry or something, but we know what we mean by a foot. And then you try to build things that are the same physical. And then you use that. And then to say, how many feet wide is my yard? You technically take this thing and you lay it end to end. You said, that's what it means to say, this is 32 feet wide. And so when you say like, oh, this car traded for $10,000. So did, the, did that price, does the money somehow measure how much value is in the car? That doesn't make any sense. That no, all that really happened is this person traded $10,000 in cash and this person traded a car. And why did they do that? It wasn't because there was some sort of equality. The guy who gave up the cash thought the car was more valuable than the $10,000. That's why he agreed to the trade. And the seller, or yeah, the seller thought vice versa. He thought the $10,000 in cash was more valuable than the car. And that's why he agreed to the trade. So there's no equality there that $10,000 equals the car in any sense. It's both parties. They just had different valuations. And that was the, what made the trade go through. And then another way to see it is, because I think Steve Forbes was a fan of the gold standard, and so was Mises. Um, so let's say we, you know, we had it locked in that the, the, uh, you know, the dollars $20.67 an ounce, you know, back what it was like prior to World War I. And we just kept it like that. And so I think Steve Forbes is saying, ah, back in those days in the classical gold standard, the dollar was a measuring rod of value because it was fixed. But suppose, you know, there's a huge discovery of new gold or, an, you know, an asteroid comes and the amount of gold in the world doubles. Well, yes, it's true. The dollar fixed in terms of gold would not change, right? It would still be $20.67 because, you know, the, the U.S. government would, would stay true to its pledge and keep the dollar defined as a certain number of grains of gold or whatever. But because now there's twice as much gold, gold's value, market value relative to everything else would be lower, right? There's more gold floating around. And so the gold, the price of stuff quoted in gold ounces would go up. And so if a dollar is locked in in a certain ratio to gold, that means the dollar prices of everything would go up. They might not literally double, but you know they would go up a lot. And so to the average person looking around, the dollar prices of everything they buy would, would double. So that would feel like inflation to them. Even though the you know what I'm saying it's it's not that all of a sudden everything on earth became twice as valuable because that dollar locked into gold at that ratio was measuring the value, you'd say, Oh no, it's just the currency got debased. And then Steve Forbes said, No, it couldn't have because the dollars and I said, Well, no, because the amount of gold just suddenly unexpectedly doubled. And so anyway, that's that's kind of the argument I use to try to just drive home that the dollar or money is not a measuring rod of value when you think through subjective value theory. That literally doesn't even make sense. And then moreover, just practically speaking, you can just come up with hypothetical, exaggerated examples to see, even if you had money defined in terms of precious metals or whatever, that's still not getting you what you think you're getting. And going the other way too, if all of a sudden like people thought, so again, the dollar, let's say it's locked into gold at $20.67 an ounce. Suppose just for whatever reason, like people decide that gold causes cancer or that they just, they think gold is ugly and no one wants to use it for jewelry anymore. 
Likewise, the demand to hold gold for these other purposes would drop. Its, per- its value relative to other goods would drop. And so hence the dollar would drop. So the dollar prices of everything else would go up. So what would happen in practice, in case the listeners are getting lost, is people wouldn't want to spend their, you know, if they had 20, if they had an ounce of gold, something that cost $20.67, now that the gold, um, you know, they, they don't think it's as pretty anymore, they think it's radioactive, it's causing cancer, the seller would say, oh, no, I don't want that ounce of gold. I don't want, you know, get rid of, I'm not taking that. You'd have to give me two ounces or something to make it worth my what. And so they would just go to the, to the central bank, to the U.S., and say, here, give me, give me dollars for this gold because the, sell, you know, the dollars aren't causing cancer. And so now there'd be a huge influx of gold into the coffers of the bank, and they would be con- committed by law to have to give 2067 in new currency, so that would cause the amount of dollars circulating to go up. So that's the mechanics of what would actually happen under the classical gold standard if all of a sudden people didn't want to hold gold anymore. Mm, they would just turn yeah. into the authorities it, what they considered to be a bargain price at that time. And so now the amount of dollars would all of a sudden shoot up. So historically, the reason the gold standard was so good is those crazy scenarios didn't happen. It wasn't like a huge asteroid came. It wasn't that all of a sudden gold was found to be causing cancer. People liked it. And so it limited how many dollars the government and, you know, francs and British pounds and whatever the authorities could print if they were committed to the gold standard. And so it was a check on printing up currency. But again, it's not because it was a measuring rod of value. That's just not, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's not precise. And I think it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's more important to kind of have that. Um, and speaking of, you know, acting as a check on the size of the government, I think potentially assuming like if more and more people started to adopt Bitcoin and you could see a scenario where maybe 10, 15 years, 20 years later, if more people are holding Bitcoin, does that then make it more difficult for the government to fund itself using cheap debt? And is that in essence, you know, because I think this is a topic where, I feel like a lot of libertarians are missing the point and they're not understanding that Bitcoin can actually achieve a very libertarian outcome of making the state smaller by forcing it to explicitly tax us instead of uh, being able to push the cost into the future with cheap debt. What's your view on that whole idea? It's been a while since I've thought through that. Originally, I was really optimistic. And then when I talked to someone who explained the mechanics of how Bitcoin worked, I thought, oh, it's not going to be a silver bullet like in the next 10 years. Like at first, I just thought it might be this way that the more of us who start using Bitcoin, we can like send purchasing power to each other and the authorities can't stop it as long as you just get on the internet. But then I was thinking through, well, no, I mean, they could do things like say, you know, anyone who's caught trading Bitcoins goes to jail and then they could, you know, even if they couldn't catch you, if they cut the service provider, you know, that kind of stuff. So I, I realized like just piecemeal guerrilla operations kind of thing. It's not that we could just totally have a dark economy using Bitcoin. Like there would still be ways. But I do think that, yeah, if, if like the whole world all of a sudden just started using Bitcoin and that was now the money of the world, that, yeah, then the, the governments, they wouldn't be able to inflate. Like it, was, it would just be, you know, sort of an off limits thing. And they would have to just deal with the fact that there was a sound money. And so, yeah, they could still do all the other things. They could tax you. You know, they could point a gun at you and say, give me some of your Bitcoins or how much did you earn last year? Well, give me half of it. They could still do that and throw you in a cage. But in terms of them being able just to go buy fighter jets by printing up dollars, they wouldn't be able to do that. And also they wouldn't be able just to issue debt. So they could, nothing would stop them from issuing debt, but without having a central bank there to monetize it, interest rates on that debt would go up. Just like nothing stopping a company right now from issuing more bonds, 
you know, there's no legal constraint, but if they do too much of it and investors start thinking, well, how are you guys going to pay this off? Then the, the interest rate they charge is going to go up. And so there's a natural inbuilt, inbuilt limit. So um, it's ironically, the MMT camp, you know, they talk about a country being a monetary sovereign. And what they mean is not only, it's not merely that this was a necessary, but insufficient condition that they issue a fiat currency. It's also got to be that they don't tie it to anything. Like sort of the classical gold standard, that wouldn't count. Um, and also that they they only borrow in that debt denominated in that currency. And so that's why like Venezuela or something, if it had outstanding US dollar denominated debt, they, you know, them printing money hurts people because then, you know. Um, and so if if you think it through that the more people that use Bitcoin and there's their day-to-day currency, that would take away that what the MMT campers mean by monetary sovereignty from more and more governments where Exactly. Yeah, they can print up these things called dollars, but it's it'd be like, you know, the Zimbabwe government just printing up and it just crashes against it. Whereas right now, the Fed can create five trillion new dollars and the markets kind of absorb it. It's not that, you know, the per dollar value just goes down proportionally, so there's no point to it. Yeah, of course. And I think so. I think the way, you know, I guess to reflect the way many Bitcoiners are thinking about it is, I mean, we joke about it. We, you know, my friend Safetyn, we call Safetyn calls it number go up technology, right? So this idea that it's so scarce and you can't make more of it, right? So this Julian Simon idea that anything we want, you, humans can make more of it, except with Bitcoin, obviously. And so over time, if, if you know, if Bitcoin is going to be going number going up and then people who stay in fiat or let's say some central bank digital currency coin or whatever is constantly going down. If more and more people start running to Bitcoin and then it, it becomes more like a hard money Bitcoin world, then I think that substantially shrinks the size of the government because right now part of how they can achieve this is using cheap debt. And we I think we are moving into a world where it is going to be more equity based as opposed to cheap debt based. Uh, so I'm wondering whether you see any, uh, uh, like, I guess, from a, like a broader macro view, do you see it, that being a potential thing, if people, if more and more people get into Bitcoin, do you think it would be a more equity based world as opposed to debt funding? Yeah, I, I, I do think so. I mean, I would, I would want to think about it more, like before I really took a strong stand. but yes, sure, I, yeah. I think that's true. And you're right. I mean, I've written, not in the context of Bitcoin adoption, but just in general about how why is it that we're such a debt-based economy? And, and it was really bothering me, like in the wake of the financial crisis, lots of like Paul Krugman, especially, you know, were writing and saying things like, oh, um, in order for the private sector to, you know, deleverage, you need the public sector to take on more debt. Otherwise, incomes go down. And, and I was just coming up with simple, you know, thought experiments to just show counterexamples to say, no, that's not true. And it, and it had to do with equity that, they, you know, they just assumed that, you know, oh, gee, for this guy to reduce his debt somewhere else in the community must be increasing their debt, you know, or it doesn't work. And it's like, no, you could be increasing your equity. And, you know, so you're right that it's people, I think, when they're thinking about claims, I guess that's the issue that, um, you know, when, when someone issues a debt claim, you know, it's like, oh, this person has an asset, but it's someone else's liability. Whereas with equity, it's your asset and there's nobody in the community whose liability it is. If that means, you know, so... And, and people were not getting that. And that's the sense in which we can all have more greater financial assets. It's not just a zero sum game. And it's, and yet the way some people were writing both the MMT camp and, you know, even the just standard new Keynesian, like Paul Krugman camp is that it seemed like they were thinking that that wasn't possible. And, you know, and you get the stuff, I'm sure you've seen it with the MMT or saying, 
oh, the public debt is good because the only way to get net private saving is for the government to increase its debt. And that's just not true. You, you know, Robinson Crusoe on an island can have net private saving. So once you unpack what they mean by net, yeah, it is true, but that's because that's a stupid term. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean what it <laughs> sounds like it means. They're making it sound like if the government doesn't run up a deficit, then the people in the private sector can't all be saving. It's only like one guy saves and another guy increases his debt or dissaves. And that's not true. And like you were saying, equity has a lot to do with it. So that's my long-winded way of saying, right, I think there's some weird intellectual shortcoming where a lot of people have convinced themselves that debt finance is the way to go and that it's the only way that capitalism can work. And that's just not true. You can have equity finance and it's a lot, a lot safer and you know, for obvious reasons. Um, and that, yeah, probably having hard money being the standard would certainly help in that regard and, and, and implement that, incentivize it. And uh, so certainly the more people using Bitcoin, yeah. So I've kind of convinced myself while we're talking here that yes, I agree with you. The more people who use Bitcoin, probably the less you would see debt financing and more equity financing. Right. Yeah. And I'm curious as well, whether you have any thoughts and uh, I don't know, you've got a, your, this was your graduate thesis as well uh, around interest rates. And because I wonder in that kind of world, it might be that you know, if you want debt and maybe there's a lot less, a lot, lot less debt, but you have to pay much, much higher interest costs for that. I'm wondering what you think on that idea or should it be, you know, is it more like the PTPT, right? Um, pure time preference theory of interest and that it's more just like it's just a reflection of people's time preference. So if they have a very low time preference, then they on average are willing to have a lower interest rate because they've got a they're willing to, you know, forego um, their consumption. Whereas if they're high time preference, then you would think their interest rate that they would charge someone is higher because it's costing mm -hmm. them more, right? Right. So I let me answer this way. I think if everybody were using if Bitcoin were the money and that's, you know, everything was denominated in Bitcoins. And especially, you know, once we hit the 21 million or like you say, you know, just under asymptotically get close to it, um, that the normal state of affairs would be price deflation. So the price of cars and houses is quoted in Bitcoins would, would, well, certainly cars, maybe not houses, but certainly cars and food would go down, clothing, newly produced goods each year that have a short lifespan. Those prices quoted in Bitcoins would go down over time because the quantity produced each year would typically go up, you know, as you know, progress. Growth deflation, yeah. And then with a the given thing, and then certainly as more, more people are born, you know, the, the, the fixed number of Satoshis has to get this, you know, and so they have to have a higher purchasing power just so everybody's got a decent amount of purchasing power. With, this, with that finite amount, you know, just getting redistributed around. So each person claims it holds less and less actual Satoshis on average as the population rises. Um, so that would have to happen. And so I think you would see real interest rates would be higher than they are now, depending on what numbers you look at. In some cases, they're negative or close to it. So I think you would see that, like, to, and that would just show that there's real money involved. And that sort of logically makes sense that the intertemporal exchange rate would be positive as it were like to, you know, to take goods from the present and the few you know, present goods command a premium or future goods. And that's sort of like goes hand in hand with a positive real rate of interest. And so, but the, the nominal rate wouldn't have to be as high because prices are dropping. So you would know that, that, that yeah, if I'm going to give up a hundred Satoshis today, I only need to get paid back 103 next year because things are going to be cheaper anyway. So they're going to be, so that, the Satoshis I'm getting paid back with next year 
buy more stuff than what they could buy when I gave them up. So there's that natural appreciation. So it's the opposite of what happens now. Now, you know, you, if you give up a hundred dollars and there's someone's going to give you 103 next year, you're like, Oh, but I'm only, that's not going to buy as much, you know, so I might be even be losing money if inflation's higher than 3%. So that's why you got to add a, a price inflation premium with this it would work the other way around. So I think there's, there's two countervailing things. On the one hand, the real interest rate would be higher because I think this makes more economic sense in that regime. And so that would encourage saving, by the way, too. That's why you would defer consumption because you're getting that real interest rate, um, which is you know, healthy for productive long-term growth. But the nominal interest rate might still be pretty low just because, again, that prices keep falling measured in Bitcoin. And so you know, you, if you, you'd be willing to part with it because you knew what you're getting paid back, it's going to have more purchasing power. Yeah, that's really fascinating to think about. And um, even um, I've also, you know, read and seen other ideas that, you know, historically, there was more patronage because people reached a saturation point in terms of what they could invest in. Whereas when we're living in this fiat financing world, there's just always more and more projects that they can just throw money at. Uh, whereas historically, they might have been more about, okay, I've kind of hit a certain saturation point in what I can invest in. Um, and so now I'm actually just going to start funding various arts and projects and building a big cathedral and things like that. Is that something you've seen as well in your kind of studies as well? I, well, I don't know if this is okay. So, so yes, it would. One thing too, is people would hold a larger share of their portfolio in the form of actual cash. You know, so in that world, they would call the Bitcoins cash. And so, whereas now again, because of price inflation, you know, you you don't you don't want to be sitting on actual hundred dollar bills in in your home safe. You know, unless you're worried about the banks collapsing or something. But in general, you don't want to have a bunch of your wealth literally in currency, just because that's crazy. You're not earning an interest, and prices keep going up, measured in dollars. So why would you do that? Um, whereas, yeah, with bitcoins, it wouldn't be crazy to hold a bunch of your wealth in the actual form of satoshis, because again, prices are coming down. It's just giving you you know you're earning a positive rate of return just sitting on cash which is, you know, baffles most people, but that, that, that would be the normal state of affairs. And I think that, so this kind of goes to your about, you know, equity versus debt. Like that's, that's less risky. You know what I mean? For people just to be holding, you know, it's very liquid in other words, you're not putting your stuff out. And, and so you're right. I think partly right now what's fueling, you know, they use the phrase like um, people reaching for yield. Yeah. And so the idea is that, yeah, when nominal interest rates are really low, like, like insurance companies, for example, life insurance companies, you know, they're taking in premiums and they, they, they know there's liabilities on their books that people are going to be dying over time or pension funds or whatever. You know, they're, they're taking contributions from the workers' paychecks and they know they got to, you know, pr produce because when they retire, they got to have assets given off income to be able to fund their retirement. And if interest rates are really low in terms of safe things, you know, what's considered safe, like treasury bonds and stuff, then, um, you know, geez, we, we just, that can't work. We can't invest in treasuries right now because the rate of interest is so, the yield is so low that, and so they get into riskier stuff. So yeah, I think that would, would totally be reversed in a, in a hard money world, which we would have if everybody's using Bitcoin. And, uh, and, and so, right, a lot of these frivolous investments, I think would not happen. Also too, some of it is, th there's this selection element. It's not so much just this, the given investor in the different regimes and the, because sometimes people say stuff like with the Austrian theory of the business cycle, like, you know, oh, interest rates get pushed artificially low. And so entrepreneurs invest in, you know, male investments because the, and people will say, 
But if it was something stupid and they knew it was stupid at 8%, how come if the central bank pushes it to two, all of a sudden these savvy investors are, oh, like, don't they know rates are going to rise down the road? You know, but it's not necessarily the same people. It's that if they push it down low enough, then maybe some joker comes in who borrows at the 2% to go buy the, you know what I mean? Because of the cheap money, it's not merely that it's not the same borrowers and they just pay lower rates. It's that the, the, you know, the criteria for who's credit worthy also tends to get lowered during a, you know, a mania, during a credit boom. Yeah. It's, so it's also that the you know, borrowers are given huge sums of money who really shouldn't be getting loans at all. Yeah, and so they and they go and invest in stupid projects. I'm sure you've probably heard that joke, right? It's um, it's not that uh, entrepreneurs become idiots; it's that idiots become entrepreneurs. I haven't heard that. That that's a better way of summing it up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. Look, uh, Bob, I, I'm a huge fan. This is really great. I really enjoyed chatting with you. I want to respect your time. Um. But before we let you go, obviously, uh, listeners, make sure you follow Bob and um subscribe to his show. And uh, yeah, Bob, where can listeners find you and listen to you online? Sure, yeah. Just I'll point them to bobmurphyshow.com. That's my podcast and that's got links to my other stuff. But that's the, yeah, that's the main thing I'd point people to, bobmurphyshow.com. Fantastic, Bob. I really enjoyed listening to you and uh, learned, reading from your works. It was, it was, a, it was a pleasure and, and an honor to interview you. Thanks for joining me. Oh, well, thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. And I, I learned a lot from this talk as well. So thanks. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.